notice how the front steps of police headquarters are perpetually in some sort of temporal causality loop? Every single time the Batmobile pulls up, these two ladies in the foreground react with surprise as this businessman walks up the steps, and these ladies in red and white walk toward Batman and Robin as they leap out of the most fantastic car ever made, then turn around and watch in amazement as they bound up the stairs. And then this other woman in a green skirt walks across like it's business as usual, and then this guy in a gray hat makes his way toward the building from the foreground. All while a plume of smoke is curiously billowing up as if an adjacent building is on fire or something. It's a little unnerving, and I wonder how Batman's never noticed it before. What's wrong, Batman? I don't know, Robin. I get the strange feeling we've done this precise activity precisely the same way a hundred times before. Holy time loop! If the Dark Knight is a steak, then the Adam West Batman series is what I want for dessert. The great serious Batman comic stories, movies, and animated shows are where the meat are. And this show, for me, is almost a literal treat. You can't have any pudding if you don't eat your meat. It's chocolate cake with sprinkles on top. It's fun, it's bright, it's colorful, cheerful, lively. And even though it's not part of a balanced breakfast or any of the four basic food groups, it makes me smile. And I can't imagine Batman without it. But if I consume too much at one time, it might give me a tummy ache. What I'm getting at is that now that I've watched through this entire series inside just a couple months, I think Batman is best viewed as it was originally aired, a couple times a week. A lot of people don't understand this show because it's not what they think of when they think of Batman, and they feel this show made a mockery of the character. Well, it kind of did, but it was fully aware of what it was, intending to be a parody of Batman and an homage to comic book storytelling. Adam West calls it theater of the absurd. A lot of us took it totally seriously when we were kids because the show brilliantly plays itself completely straight within the context of its own world while it knows full well that it's utter nonsense. But it never meant to be the be-all, end-all version of Batman. It just kind of worked out that way for the general consumer. I don't mean to say that there's no substance at all to Adam West Batman. There's some great biting satire about social issues of the day. But within the framework of this light-hearted, bizarre, totally unique and original live-action cartoon taking its cues from the primary colored comics it takes its material from. This show made fun of practically everything, and it often made fun of both sides of everything, revealing the absurdities of the world we live in by making them more absurd. If it satirized pop culture, it made fun of pretentiousness and high culture. If it made light of female stereotypes, it made fun of male stereotypes. If it made fun of government, it made fun of big business. I'd argue that there are a lot of interesting similarities between this and the original Star Trek show. Both began and ended at precisely the same time, 1966 to 1969. Both had low ratings and smaller budgets that affected their final seasons. Both shared a lot of the same pool of character actors. But more importantly, both were ahead of their time. They both got away with tackling hot-button social issues by masking them under the guise of something else. With Star Trek, it was sci-fi allegory. With Batman, absurd comedy. Star Trek gave us morality plays while Batman gave us satire. And Batman was also ahead of its time when it came to technology. Batman isn't for everybody. Even if you appreciate 
that it knows what it is and means to be absurd, the Batusi just might not be your thing. I certainly can't deny a great deal of nostalgia for this show, but I'm happy to report that after finally seeing every episode, and there were a lot that I had either never seen or didn't remember, I still overall think it's brilliant comedy. It's not the kind of show you can critique on a traditional story level. Its rules are its own, and it lives and dies by whether or not you're laughing with it. There are certainly episodes I found slow or lackluster in comparison to the really sharp ones. It doesn't all work just because it's campy and therefore there are no standards of quality. I thought the first Mr. Freeze episode was clever and interesting, but I thought the second was all over the map. Did you know, by the way, that there were as many different Mr. Freezes as there were Catwomen? This was a video I wondered if I would ever have the privilege of making, as for forever, it seemed the rights issues for this series may never be settled and we'd never see a release. I was indescribably elated when the DVDs and Blu-rays finally were announced, and it was a little surreal actually getting them and seeing these brilliant, vibrant transfers for the first time. Briefly, let me say that I can't recommend the box set highly enough including a history of Adam West and a retrospective of his career and how he feels about Batman completely in his own words. A documentary on the history of the show itself with some great interviews of Batman contemporaries who were inspired by the show, including Bruce Timm, and a really in-depth feature on 60s Batman collectibles, which does a great job of exploring the psychology and behavior of hardcore collectors. Did you know you can get your own custom-made Batmobile with working gadgets for $150,000? I gotta get me one of those. One of these days, Alice. One of these days. Since, as I'm recording this, this set is still fairly new, I'm gonna go about this top ten a little differently than the others I've done. This will be simultaneously an overview of the series on the whole, as it is a top ten. And consequently, it's gonna be like that ridiculously giant cookbook in the bookworm episode compared to my other list. I have a lot of things I want to cover, and for those of you who are curious to know more about this show but haven't had the chance to watch it through yourself, I thought I'd share some of the really interesting things I learned and observations I made. And since this series so greatly affected the culture's perspective of Batman, to the point that we couldn't move past it for two decades until Frank Miller wrote The Dark Knight Returns, I'd like to present ten moments or details I found that either directly influenced later Batman screen media, or else is suspiciously similar to later Batman works. Holy deja vu, Batman! Here we go. Number 10, the clown mask the Joker wore at the beginning of The Dark Knight is in The Joker is Wild. Number 9, the line, it's always darkest just before the dawn, is said no fewer than three times, beginning with Batman in Walk the Straight and Narrow. In The Penguin Goes Straight and Not Yet He Ain't, Penguin tries to frame Batman and steals the Batmobile, just like he does in Batman Returns. The minstrel attacks the stock market in the minstrel shakedown and threatens to shake the whole city apart with an earthquake machine, which uses sympathetic vibration. Bane didn't use an earthquake machine, of course, in The Dark Knight Rises, but the prevailing fan theory before that movie came out was that that's what he had. And interestingly, that's what the undertaking was at the end of Arrow Season 1, which heavily borrowed ideas from the Nolan movies. I'm also surprised that the same episode involving the stock market includes drones, the handling of both of which have been topical issues of controversy lately, and this was only in 1967. The Joker improves paintings as an artist in a museum in Pop Goes the Joker and Flop Goes the Joker, just like the Joker in 1989. 
The Penguin runs for mayor in Hisner the Penguin, Disner the Penguin, and a baby bites his nose instead of the Penguin biting somebody else's nose like he does in Batman Returns. Batman has plastic explosives like he does in Arkham City, and I recall using them a lot when I fought Mr. Freeze there, too. The death trap in The Puzzles Are Coming is Batman and Robin floating up and up forever in a hot air balloon. The Balloonman, in the episode of the same name, in Gotham, killed people the same way. In the Zodiac Crimes, Joker hangs on a helicopter ladder like he does in 89. And finally, in Better Luck Next Time, Robin says, Catwoman, you are not a nice person. Young Bruce Wayne oddly tells her the exact same thing verbatim in an episode of Gotham. And now, without further ado, here are my top 10 favorite episodes of Adam West Batman. To the Bat List! Number 10, The Clock King's Crazy Crimes and The Clock King Gets Crowned. As some of you know, I have something of an unusual fixation with The Clock King that started with his first episode in Batman the Animated Series. A couple years ago, I made a petition to get the character an arrow, and now that he's been there, which I'm positive really had nothing to do with me, he's one of my favorite iterations of the character. I had never had the opportunity to see the 60s version until the box set was released and was surprised to find it one of the better episodes. I'm not just including it because of my Clock King bias. After all, the Clock King from Batman the Animated Series narrowly missed my top 10 list for that video. I thought it odd that the Batman producers thought of Clock King given that he was initially a Green Arrow villain and kind of expected he'd be one of the lamer throwaway villains like the Archer or the Minstrel but the episode gets as much mileage out of the time gimmick as it ever did with jokes or cats or riddles or ancient Egypt, and I found myself disappointed that he never returned again. There are a lot of obvious puns and common time-related phrases. The time is at hand, some people kill time, but this time, time will kill you, and at the end, Batman's great line, Clock King made time serve his means, now he must serve time himself. There's plenty of stuff about schedules and being a slave to time, encapsulated by the only appropriate death trap, Batman and Robin watching their final seconds tick away inside a giant hourglass. I think there's a lot more time-related stuff that could have been mine, though, especially since this isn't the only episode that deals with time. I find it a bit of a missed opportunity that it wasn't Clock King who got his hands on a time machine that allowed him to move time forward or backwards instead of the Joker and the Joker's providers. I like Walter Slezak's smug demeanor and how he always acts perfectly in control, like he always knows something nobody else in the room does. He's totally comfortable in the role and seems to relish the kooky comedy, just like Frank Gorshin or Vincent Price. And speaking of Egghead, he's another supposed genius who believes himself to rival Batman's intellect, and those tend to be my favorites. There's a moment where Clock King stabs a table with a clock hand to suggest what he hopes to do to Batman and Robin, saying, "...and I'll strike hard!" Who would have thought almost 50 years later a darker version of the same character created for a different time would do the same thing, but actually stab a human being with a clock hand? Perhaps what makes this episode most notable is that it's co-written by Bill Finger, co-creator of Batman, who I'd imagine is why a lot of the first act takes place at a pop art exhibition, bringing the very visual medium that spawned Batman into his world, and maybe why the script is punchier and the dialogue a little sharper and wittier than average. The episode pokes fun at the Andy Warhol-era pop art craze, which of course was hugely influential on the series, satirizing what many people 
people saw as pointless and ridiculous, not unlike criticisms of this show. Is it really art, or was it just junk? And pop artists dupe patrons of high art who fancied themselves cultured that there was something deep and symbolic about their work. Clock King is given the disguise of a famous pop artist, Progress Pigment, who looks suspiciously like Andy Warhol in his self-portraits in 1964. His name is Pigment because of all the primary colors, and Progress because, after all, anything new must be a step forward. It's interesting to note that despite the fact that Batman was a parody, it was so original and such a phenomenon that it attended to affect the very institutions it was lampooning. Warhol was arguably influenced as much by Batman as Batman was influenced by Warhol. After all, just like with Pee Wee Herman and children's television, Batman became the epitome of the culture it was making fun of. And what Warhol was painting was pop culture. Andy Warhol made a Batman movie without the DC license in 1967 called Batman Dracula, which he couldn't legally show very easily, and so only a few segments are available on YouTube. The episodes Pop Goes the Joker and Flop Goes the Joker devoted an entire story to making fun of this very thing. There, the Joker enters an art contest, paints nothing at all, and convinces the judge not only that his blank canvas is the most profound painting of the group, but ends up helping him with his caper because she thinks he's a genius. Here, Clock King turns his nose up at all the other pieces there, pretending that his work is the only thing worthy of being on display, and unveils a crazy contraption he calls, yep, you guessed it, time out of joint, which makes a lot of irritating noise to cover up the sound of the saw blade he's using to rip into the wall and steal the painting he's there for. One of the paintings Progress Pigment acts revolted by is a fantastic spoof of Salvador Dali's famous painting Persistence of Memory, with Batman falling to his doom and Robin being eaten by a giant pair of teeth. It's supposed to look kind of surreal, but it's not all that much weirder than a lot of what we've seen in this show. Of everything I'd love a replica of from this series, that is probably in my top five. I like it so much, I would almost build a Time Out of Joint machine and use it as a distraction and a museum just so I could steal it. Clock King's lead henchman is played by Michael Pate, who played the president in a B-movie I reviewed a couple years ago called The Return of Captain Invincible. That gargantuan, goofy smile was unmistakable, and since I enjoyed him so much in that movie, it was a treat for me to get to see him have so much screen time here. He's one of the rare male henchmen that actually figures in any way into the story besides getting smacked around by Batman. He's an incompetent henchman who can't follow instructions and screws up the whole villain plot. If he had just remembered that the atomic energy directional control switch wasn't supposed to go inside the clock they used to spy on Wayne Manor, Clock King wouldn't have gotten off schedule, and he probably would have managed to steal the million-dollar cesium clock before Batman ever figured out what he was after. I love that Clock King gets closer than a lot of villains to outwitting Batman, and he's beaten because his machine isn't well-oiled. One of the cogs malfunctions, and his clock slows down. This one also includes one of the more famous window cameos, Sammy Davis Jr., who, in case you're curious, is rehearsing Birth of the Blues, though, as with a lot of those cameos, I can't fathom why the heck he's in Gotham unless he's on tour. Some of the great gags from this episode include Batman and Robin stopping off at a diner for a Bat Burger named in Batman's honor, and a hysterical scene which intercuts between Batman and the Batcave and Clock King stealing Bruce Wayne's pocket watches upstairs, with the announcer saying, Meanwhile in the Batcave! and, meanwhile, up in the Wayne living room, three or four times in a row. It also includes maybe my favorite Chief O'Hara line. Aunt Harriet invites he and Gordon to Bruce's surprise birthday party and asks them to be there at 7-ish. And O'Hara says they'll be there at 7-ish, quote, on the dot. That sums up Chief O'Hara in a nutshell, the exact opposite of Batman and Clock King, 
hardly any signs of life. And it's neat that it's not an arbitrary joke. He's being stupid about showing up to a place on time in the Clock King episode. And to put that cherry on top for me, the ending furthers a hilarious running joke I'd never picked up on until I watched the series in order, and it's that Batman hates Chief O'Hara. There are moments early on where Batman practically comes right out and tells him how completely daft he is. Here, after he's apprehended Clock King, O'Hara congratulates Batman, saying, I couldn't have done it better myself and Adam West delivers this line with a brilliantly subtle whiff of sarcasm and irritation. Thanks, Chief O'Hara. That's high praise indeed. Number nine, the Joker goes to school and he meets his match, the Grizzly Ghoul. Only the second appearance of Cesar Romero as the Joker, this is one of his most diabolical plots. Trick all the kids at Dick Grayson's high school into dropping out with promises of easy living so they'll have no recourse but to join gangs to support themselves. And it includes one of Joker's more memorable and sadistic death traps, which struck me as kind of terrifying when I was a kid. A slot machine hooked up to an electric chair with the odds in the favor of three lemons, but the chance at winning their freedom or even their freedom and a bunch of money. It's one of the more subtly appropriate traps, or subtle for this show anyway, as the Joker's scheme is all about taking advantage of people looking to make a quick buck without having to work for it. And it's for that reason that Batman says, I don't approve of gambling, with as much conviction as the brave and the bold Batman has about not eating nachos. As always, the logic is absolutely preposterous. These kids are so impressionable and short-sighted that as soon as the milk machine in the school gym starts dispensing silver dollars, they instantly start questioning what the point is of studying and working hard. As if they'll forever be able to rely on vending machines to provide them with a steady income. I like this one mostly for its satire. There's a lot of stuff in the series about people becoming dumbed down and complacent by depending too much on modern conveniences, and that was a major concern during the period as we were hit deep in the push-button age. Can we continue to be self-sufficient and keep our natural senses sharp if we're constantly employing machines to do more of the work for us? And how easy is it for a smart charlatan to take advantage of that mentality and manipulate people who become entitled and expect everything to be handed to them? I like how aware it is of Batman's potential hypocrisy. He tells these kids that life isn't easy, and in a hysterical moment, warns a barkeep to be more careful with his jukebox because, quote, these machines can be deadly. Yet he depends on high-tech gadgets to solve most of his problems. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's in this episode Commissioner Gordon voices his relief that Batman has such advanced technology. And, of course, this incompetent police force is just like the children, depending on someone else to do everything for them while they get dumber and dumber as they sit around looking important until anyone they can even remotely get away with calling a super criminal commits a crime and they call Batman. The only difference is that they're just lucky Batman really is a selfless hero who never takes advantage of their trust like the Joker does. It's all about whose hands the technology is in, and whether they respect it and are responsible with it. And sure, Bruce Wayne is stupid rich and seems to own a lot of Gotham City, but he did invent all of his amazing technology, and you can't criticize Batman for not working hard. I do think this episode is bringing a running gag to the forefront that continues all the way throughout the show, that Batman has created a culture of dependence himself, and never quite realizes it because he's 
he's blinded by his duty to help in any way he can. In that way, this Batman is a little more like Superman than the darker Batman. Both he and Superman might be doing so much for the world that it takes them for granted and would be lost without them. Naturally, the Batman series is making light of that as a recognizable, already classic comic book trope, rather than commenting on it in a serious way. But I really think it's clever to contrast that with the Joker's plot here, having him create his own culture of dependence on purpose. This plot is oddly similar to the Shredder's scheme of corrupting directionless youth in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. It's one of the more messagey episodes, but the way it goes about it is hilarious. Joker seduces a brainless cheerleader with promises of a taste of the finer things, and I love Susie's Barbie doll vacant expressions. There's maybe a little commentary about public education and its sometimes strange priorities, too. Susie is automatically on the school council just because she's the head cheerleader, despite having no leadership skills or a glimmer of independent thought. And I like how the cheerleaders are so lacking in imagination, they need their poetry teacher to write their cheers for them. As always, this show exaggerates everything to the most ludicrous degree, and that's what I love about it. I know not every cheerleader is like that, but this show depicts every sort of stereotype to make fun of the people who maybe get a little too close to the cliches for comfort. Susie has the closest thing to a character arc here, learning that she can't trust a crook like the Joker because he's just using her and will discard her without a moment's hesitation if she becomes a liability, when he tries to poison her with a tainted bottle of Canadian perfume after Batman figures out they're working together. Ironically, after she's learned the lesson that life isn't easy the hard way, Bruce Wayne gives her the easiest possible incarceration imaginable. It's often the female henchmen who rethink the path they've chosen and come around to the right side of the law by the end because girls are naturally pure and good and sweet-natured, but they're delicate and fragile and easily led down the wrong path. When comparing Batman to other series at the time, like Star Trek, it's sometimes hard to tell if it's always parodying its pop culture contemporaries' general attitude toward women, or if, as a product of its time, it also sometimes can't help but embrace them. While the Batman villains are never more than two-dimensional, and we rarely know how any of them become the criminals they are today, we get a glimpse of Joker's worldview here. When he thinks that Susie's dead, he says, what's the death of one greedy little dupe? This life at best is one long practical joke. I really like how that fits in with his shtick. Either play the joke, or the joke gets played on you. And Romero is unusually serious in that brief moment, before he gives a henchman an exploding cigar and gets zany again. Still far from the demented and twisted Joker in The Dark Knight, this is one of the episodes that gets the closest. He's willing to bump off his own people for his purposes, he teases and taunts his henchmen, and he can justify everything he does with the logic that if he doesn't use people, somebody would be using him. It's not exactly he Heath Ledger's These Civilized People, They'd Eat Each Other, but it's cool that it gets that far. The climax is really fun. It's a classic Batman-Joker fight, with Joker trying to beat Batman with tricks, and Batman anticipating his antics and conveniently having an immediate absurd counter-move. It's one of the only times, maybe THE only time, we see Batman actually knock a villain out with a Batarang, which is significant only because the Batarangs are talked about a lot, like Batman and Robin are constantly pelting villains with them, but primarily only come out when they're bat-climbing. I like that it's Joker in the movie who rejects one of the other villains' schemes because he's afraid it'll lead to their getting, quote, bopped with a batarang. I had forgotten he was speaking from personal experience. Number eight, death in slow motion and the Riddler's false notion. 
I've already talked about Frank Gorshin in my review for the Batman movie. I love his manic intensity, his over-the-top theatrical mannerisms, his insane laugh, and his crazed mood swings. And I love the Riddler in this show in general because he's, in a way, always the most appropriate bad guy for this format. In most episodes, Batman and Robin decipher vague clues often deliberately left behind by the villain and always astonishingly manage to stumble upon the answer, thanks to Batman's encyclopedic knowledge of absolutely everything that's ever going on in Gotham City and every single factory, warehouse, and business. Riddler's riddles naturally give Batman that sort of detective work to do, and it always makes a little more sense that he'd leave them on purpose than some of the others. I'm disappointed Riddler wasn't in a few more episodes, especially given the towering number Burgess Meredith did, and that one of the better Riddler scripts was given to a different Riddler, John Ashton, who never once attempted the sort of high-pitched squeal Gorshin does, despite Robin calling him a giggling gorilla before he even laughs one time in the episode. It would be okay that Ashton did a totally different performance if it weren't so painfully obvious that script was written for Gorshin and if he didn't feel so totally lost in the role, like the script was driving all his scenes and he was just a placeholder until Gorshin came back. He does, but only once more, in the somewhat mediocre one-part Ring Around the Riddler. It's also a shame Gorshin didn't get to act in the coolest of the Riddler hideouts, complete with a door that opens in the shape of a question mark. I've always seen Gorshin as a really underrated actor, and it's a shame that he's not more widely considered to be one of the great comedians of his day. He's known mostly for playing the Riddler, of course, but his stand-up was outstanding. He was a brilliant impressionist, and this episode is one of my favorites because it showcases all of his skills, especially that one. This is one of the two episodes homaging and satirizing the film industry. The other is a three-parter from late season two that begins with Penguin as a girl's best friend, in which Penguin coerces Batman and Robin to play in a movie he's directing, and it's more about contemporary filmmaking of the day and the allure of stardom. Now, this one has a little of that going on with a henchwoman who gets involved with the Riddler's silent movie caper because she's, as Batman puts it, a star that was never born, a jaded actress who hasn't been discovered yet. It's got a little of that Hollywood project commenting on the cutthroat nature of the business that produced it thing, but mostly this one is a tribute to the silent film era, and you can tell that Gorshin has a real affinity for this material all the way through. He dresses up in a number of costumes, throwbacks to everything from Harold Lloyd to the Great Train Robbery, but the best is the episode's teaser, where Riddler distracts a crowd at a silent film festival from his first crime with a spot-on Charlie Chaplin impersonation. Riddler is the perfect villain for a silent film-themed caper, because his movements are always so deliberately exaggerated. It's almost as if he's a product of these movies himself. When we see some of the film the Riddler is making, he fits perfectly in his own silent movie just by acting normal. He doesn't have to go any bigger than he usually does, and I can't imagine how much bigger Gorshin could have gone. It's one of the tighter villain plots, as everything is neatly tied together by the end. A lot of the traditional two-part Batman episodes see their villains executing a lot of random side capers that never really amount to anything just to pad the episode to a full hour, or really convoluted elements that continue throughout but never make a lot of sense, like in Green Ice and Deep Freeze, when Mr. Freeze tries to freeze a girl to death to force him to fall in love with her, but while how in the world that works is played like an unanswered question will eventually get the answer to, it never pays off. And sometimes that nonsensical stuff is part of the charm with this show. It's difficult to criticize even the 
inconsistencies and logical incongruities because they're so often intentional, or at the very least, the show is acutely aware of them. But plots like this one really stand out. The film collector, Van Jones, putting on the festival at the beginning, acts appalled at the Riddler's chaplain stunt, saying he's not impressed with an amateur group taking all the attention away from the classic films. But by the end of the episode, we find that he was in on it the whole time, having hired the Riddler to make him a modern silent movie starring Batman to add to his collection. These schemes often involve red herrings to distract Batman and Robin from the real crime, but this time, all those extra crimes turn out to be cleverly woven into the primary scheme. We don't learn until the denouement that the Riddler is getting all this film so he has something to show Van Jones at the end. Riddler's grand plan is to satisfy Van Jones enough to get him to open his vault of rare silent movies when he adds the Riddler's film to his collection and then steal the whole thing and ransom it back to Van Jones for a fortune rather than settling for the piddly $100,000 Van Jones was going to pay him for his Batman film. Now, considering he pulls a gun on Van Jones, it's hard not to wonder why Riddler had to go with such an elaborate scheme instead of just breaking in and pulling a gun on the guy, and also why Van Jones isn't immediately suspicious of Riddler for wearing a great train robbery-style hold-up man get-up. And the answer, of course, is that if he did that, we wouldn't get all this fun silent movie stuff. It's cool to see everything come together at the end and not know Riddler's endgame until just before he's thwarted by Batman. Side note, the Riddler tries to kick Batman off his trail with riddles leading them to a train on the other side of town by referencing what's supposedly the most famous silent film ever made, The Great Train Holdup. I question retitling The Great Train Robbery like this because the episode is riddled with references to real silent film stuff. I realize this is a wacky comic book universe where everything is different, but this is a case where I would expect it to be consistent given that everything else that's talked about is real. I wouldn't think anything of it if if it were a totally made-up film, but why genericify that title? But it's made even stranger when we get to the two-part Shame episode in Season 3, where Shame constantly refers to his caper as the Great Train Robbery. This is also some of the most intense and emotional we ever see Batman. Riddler's kidnapped Robin, because Robin was too stupid not to be suspicious of a girl wearing a Bo Peep costume in the middle of a silent film plot, and Batman is so distraught, he's worried he might lose himself and do Riddler's henchgirl violence. I really appreciate that in a Riddler episode, because I've always seen Riddler as the most legitimately deranged of the 60s villains. Batman takes Pauline to the Batcave and uses a concoction that allows him to determine if she's telling the truth based on the oxygen content of her breath, which is his hilarious way of interrogating her without injecting anything into her bloodstream or torturing her. And while this is all ludicrously tame compared to what Jack Bauer does in any given morning before breakfast, remember that this Batman does everything exactly by the letter of the law and almost never compromises on any of his moral tenets, often to the point of ridiculously hurting his chances at defeating his villains. In The Dead Ringers, Robin says, self-control is sure hard sometimes, Batman. And Batman responds with, all virtues are, Robin. That's why they're virtues. All Batman's conviction is tested here in a rare episode where Batman doesn't trust himself not to go too far over the edge. He takes Gordon with him to the Batcave, his one and only trip there, which is a lot of fun, in order to have a witness that he hasn't tortured Pauline, because he really wants to. I love these moments where Batman reminds us he's a human being, with all the same failings as his villains, and that he's just learned to curb his more contemptible urges. That's why he's the eternal optimist. He believes everyone has 
has it within himself to be a decent, upstanding citizen because he's found that ability within himself. For instance, in Give Him the Axe, Batman believes that the Riddler himself has the potential to go straight and become a contributing member of society. It's important to remember that even though he takes all these precautions to keep himself from going over the line and becoming too much like well, like this Batman, Batman still breaks some rules and it feels remarkably edgy for this show. He bypasses the girl's legal rights by ignoring her request to see her lawyer, and he takes her to his lair against her will, coaxing information out of her forcefully. And yet, the episode never loses sight of the comedy. This is probably the funniest stuff in the episode, mostly because of the inherent lunacy of the police department blindly trusting Batman to the point of allowing this sort of thing. Yeah, he's a duly deputized agent of the law, but it's not like the GCPD is employing any of these tactics inside its own walls. This is openly condoning vigilante behavior. I also love the moment where Gordon says, to scare Pauline, that there are people who have come to this Batcave and never returned. Batman says in a somewhat mysterious monotone, this is true. And I can't help but wonder if that's a callback to the pilot, where another Riddler hench girl falls tragically into the atomic pile and gets killed. The the implications of this whole situation are hysterically terrifying. Oh, and I wonder if Pauline's name is a reference to the 1914 silent film serial The Perils of Pauline, especially since it, like this ongoing homage to film serials, had cliffhanger endings. There's also a moment where Riddler cleverly acknowledges this show's film serial motif and connects the very format to this episode's theme with the double entendre, this is what they call a two-parter, when Robin's about to be sliced in half by a table saw. Number seven, the greatest mother of them all, and Ma Parker. I'm a little shocked this one made my list, as I remember disliking it as a kid. I thought Ma Parker was a lame villain, just an old lady with a shotgun without a costume or flashy gimmick. I chose this episode for several of the reasons I picked the previous Riddler episode. It's a really cleverly conceived and tightly woven villain plot, and one that had a decent chance at succeeding, at least for a while. I think Ma Parker is a little overly ambitious in thinking she can control the Gotham State Penitentiary indefinitely, but she certainly has one of the most inventive and well-executed schemes in the series. Ma Parker is a parody of the real-life notorious criminal Ma Barker, not to be confused with this guy, who ran with her family all over the country and captured people's imaginations. She was considered by authorities to be one of the most dangerous people alive, but those who knew her insisted she wasn't involved in her family's criminal activities at all. Ma Parker's plan, Ma Parker not to be confused with May Parker, who also never had anything to do with criminals, ever, is to get herself and her family thrown in prison, but not too easily so as not to arouse suspicion, and so we can get enough different set pieces in here to put her in a rocket-powered wheelchair just before she's captured, because we wouldn't want to miss that golden opportunity. Then she wants to force Warden Crichton, one of the few recurring officials besides Gordon and O'Hara, to pretend he's still running the prison while she uses it as her new hideout and lets Batman round up new members of her gang for her. Before Crichton realizes what's going on, he makes the statement that Batman always returns any criminal who gets away. And that cleverly foreshadows her whole caper as she's counting on Batman to be an unwitting participant in her secret hostile takeover. I always appreciate schemes in this show that aren't generic make-a-lot-of-money-or-steal-some-artifact plot. This is one of the few I could see a serious Batman story borrowing in some form, and in fact, it's not that far removed from the plethora of the inmates-run-the-asylum stories in the comics. 
It's one of those episodes that sticks to the formula, but finds neat ways to mix up how the formula is executed and make it fresh again. The cliffhanger death trap is unusual in that Batman and Robin not only don't know they're in danger, but they also think they've already foiled the villain's plot and sent her to jail. Parker's replaced the entire staff of the prison with members of her gang, and one of them puts dynamite in the Batmobile. And it's gotta be dynamite, as country as this gang is. It'll explode if Batman hits 60 miles per hour. This episode provides great examples of how Batman's greatest strength is also his greatest weakness. He always does the right thing and gives everyone the benefit of the doubt, unless he has concrete proof that they're not above board. Incidentally, I learned with number 8 that the only people who are always above board are chessmen. This often gets Batman into trouble, because he is sometimes easily duped by criminals who take advantage of his good nature, as we see when Ma Parker pretends to be a poor, misguided mother just trying to take care of her children, and Batman lets his guard down long enough for her to escape, calling the dynamic duo and the police sentimental fools. Of course, had he caught her, she just would have gone to prison right then and started her whole scheme a lot earlier, but then we wouldn't have gotten this, and I don't know if it even would have been a contender for a place on this list. At the same time, Batman's adherence to the law, his insistence on not acting above it, saves his and Robin's life as they're racing away from the prison. He doesn't go above 60 miles per hour because the speed limit is 55, and he's no longer dealing with an emergency, so he has no reason to speed. A good driver always observes the speed laws. It's the best way to stay out of trouble. I love that line. He has no idea how right he is. Batman often lets his optimism get the better of him, but this is a world where good always triumphs over evil. So no matter how many times he falls into a trap, he always wins because he doesn't let it soften his resolve, and he always keeps his wits about him. So he'll ultimately outsmart the bad guy at the end. And then sometimes, like when the power goes out just in the nick of time in the truck with the electric chair and the Joker goes to school, the universe throws him a bone just because he's the good guy. Speaking of electric chairs, can you believe two of my top picks include those? This prison is totally confounding to me. In other episodes leading up to this, we've heard a lot about Warden Crichton's progressive no-punishment approach to incarceration, putting the focus on rehabilitation over making criminals pay for their crimes. And the show gets a lot of comedy mileage out of making fun of inept, lax, and apathetic prison systems. There are a lot of examples of his plan put to work. Multicolored bars to give the inmates a happier environment and allowing them to decorate their cells and apparently have anything they want inside. But at the same time, there's still solitary confinement, which is why Joker and Penguin don't make an appearance, but Catwoman does. Parker wants to make sure those guys know she's the boss before she lets them out. And there's a grisly execution room, which conveniently has two electric chairs side by side so Batman and Robin can both be in the same death trap. And a skull over the the clock because that's in good taste maybe they're not utilizing that room anymore but the chairs are still hooked up and ready to go so it sure seems like Crichton might have a bit of a double standard and yet the worst criminals who Gordon needs a man dressed up as a bat to bring in for him are always out with good behavior in a few weeks or a month and nobody ever seems to get the chair once again hard to decide whether I should consider that a criticism or just an amusing observation but there it is. Shelley Winters is having a ball playing this character, and she's got plenty of energy and screen presence. Impressive, considering she has to create this character from scratch, and considering that I didn't find one of the other original female villains especially fun or memorable. Why couldn't we have had one more Ma Parker episode? Instead, we got stuck with two episodes with Olga, who subjugated Egghead and made him a lot less fun than his excellent first installment. And wow, I just got that. Egghead got whipped. 
in two episodes, including a three-parter featuring Marsha, Queen of Diamonds. Ah, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I like how Ma Parker really is a caring mother, and while she tries to play the pity card, that part of it really isn't an act. She has this complex where she only likes boys, and she resents her daughter because she's not one. That's nicely paid off at the end, when Batman uses Leg's insecurities about her gender and her role in the family to pit her against her mother. Parker isn't a sympathetic villain in the sense that she's just doing this to support her family out of desperation. Like most of these villains, she really just likes the criminal lifestyle, but somehow seeing her take care of her kids, telling them how important a good education is, and keeping an orderly household even in the middle of a firefight is both charming and funny. Notably, Milton Berle has a guest bit in this one as a prison guard, and later he played, unfortunately, one of my least favorite villains, the uninspired Louis the Lilac. He's hilarious here deciding to leave Batman alone when he reminds him that he has only 48 more years left to serve in prison. I haven't mentioned the sexual innuendo the series is so famous for yet, so here are a couple great examples in this episode. While Ma Parker's prison number is four digits, Leg's prison number are her bust, waist, and hip measurements. Also, when Robin points out that Leg's legs remind him of Catwoman, Batman responds with, You're growing up, Robin. Remember, in crime fighting, always keep your sights raised. What a witty bit of writing there with all the firefights in this episode. There are a few moments like this throughout the series, too, where Batman cracks a faint smile and is happy to see Robin experiencing the normal curiosities boys have as they become men. One of the most blatant is in the entrancing Dr. Cassandra, when Batman's given Batgirl bat gas so she can't see the entrance to the Batcave, and Robin stops everything to point out how pretty he thinks she is. There, Batman says... That single statement tells me you're experiencing the first thrust of manhood. That's the kind of stuff I never noticed when I was a kid, and it helps the show not only to hold up watching it again now, but to make it feel like an entirely different experience. As soon as you begin to lose your innocence, this show does too. Number six, Surf's Up, Joker's Under. Season 3 took a different approach to the show. Ratings were slipping and there was a lot of talk that despite its instant phenomenon status, the joke was already getting stale and the formula was getting tired. The season is really hit and miss, but I think the attempt at a somewhat new approach was smart given the criticisms and the fact that both the budget and episode count were severely slashed. Batgirl was added, and like Seven of Nine's addition to Star Trek Voyager, it kind of became her show and our main cast often took a bit of a back seat. She originally had a series pilot, but instead of making that show, they just added her to season three, and in my opinion, just kind of turned this show into the Batgirl show with Batman and Robin. And also, the two-part cliffhanger format vanished in favor of a sort of ongoing serialized format. Every episode sets up the next one right at the end, regardless of whether it's continuing the same story. There are a few multi-part episodes, though even those don't have death traps in the middle. And there are still lots of death traps, but there's an attempt at mixing things up so it's less predictable where they fall. There's even a two-part Olga Egghead episode that watches a lot more like two completely unrelated episodes that just happen to be the same villains twice. But a lot of these are just single part. The villains in Season 3 are really considerate of one another because they always wait for the last villain to get apprehended by Batman before they start their next caper. It isn't that each stinger is totally separate from the timeline of the episode in question. It's always clear that whatever villain is introduced next is beginning his machinations at precisely the moment the last villain has finished his, which gives it, oddly, an almost real-time feel and makes one wonder when the heck Batman is eating, sleeping, or taking a shower. It might have been more effective if the show had 
completely embrace the serial concept as it gets a lot closer to the structure it was aping with those cliffhangers here. And of course, there's really no ongoing story progression beyond that initial change in status quo. Batman and Robin are always baffled by who Batgirl is, even though there's always a contrivance to involve Barbara Gordon in every situation, and they're made as clueless as everybody else around them who can't figure out who they really are. Also, Batgirl in this has the disappearing Batman trick that he's always playing on Gordon in every other version. But there is more of a sense of continuity here than in the previous seasons, though even there, there are a lot more callbacks to specific episodes than I ever realized. For instance, in Enter Batgirl Exit Penguin, Penguin attempts to marry Barbara Gordon in order to get immunity from prosecution by being Gordon's son-in-law. You know, because that's how that would work. And then in The Sport of Penguins, he attempts to blow up the library in a side plot just to get back at Barbara for rejecting him. We never saw that degree of interconnected continuity before. Just like with Star Trek, Season 3 has its gems, but overall it suffers from poor ratings. I couldn't resist putting this one on the list because it's a lot of fun and one of the most out-there episodes of the series. And it's got plenty of competition. It's so much of a fan favorite that when Mattel got the license, it released a Batman figure in baggies and a surfboard with the first wave. Wave. Jeez. You watch enough of this show and you start punning on accident. Anyway, there's maybe a little bit of humorous commentary on the brainlessness of some of the kids involved with surf culture, especially with the beach band that falls in with the Joker, as far as I can tell, just because the green hair makes them stand out. And this is just one more item on Season 3's 60s culture hit list. But this episode is all about the gangs for me. Hot dog radios, Batman and Robin turned into human surfboards, and is it my imagination, or is Batman's board on the left there thinner than Robin's? And Batman versus Joker in a surfing competition where they wear their shorts outside their regular costumes. And they just couldn't help themselves. You put Batman back out in the ocean and you're committing a crime worse than the Joker's if you don't take the opportunity to bring back the shark repellent. The Joker's plot is so mad it almost makes him seem really insane and not just a crook with a clown motif. He wants to transfer an experienced surfer's ability to himself with a zany brain drain device and then amass a gaggle of surf fans who will do anything he says so he can rule Gotham them and then the world. And yes, he says, first Gotham, then the world. It's one of his more ambitious plots, only insofar as he actually thinks being a surfing god will somehow lead to world domination. But he's not totally nuts because the surfing experience transfer device actually works. Batman and Robin work out a plan to get Batman in the competition, and naturally, Joker gets almost no points because he stole all his ability, which begs the question as to why his entry into the competition was legit in the first place. I also question why Batman knew how to surf, until I remember that Batman knows how to do everything. Oh, and the guy Joker steals his surfing ability from is named Skip Parker. Hmm, any relation, I wonder? Review becoming lengthy. Must take a break. Will your favorite episode be placed atop Captain Logan's pantheon of particular partialities? What other ruminations will that rapscallious reviewer reveal? Will you find yourself gasping and guffawing at the impending number one choice? Hold on to your mouse. The wildest is yet to come. Tune in next week. Same cap time, same cap channel.